Open your Bible to Revelation 7 this morning as we continue our ongoing journey through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7 this morning. And uh, as we read the text this morning, I'm actually going to begin reading in chapter 6 verse 12 because of the connection between chapter 6 and chapter 7, and then we'll read the entirety of chapter 7, though this morning we will only be focusing on the first eight verses. But we need verses 9 through 17 to understand verses 1 through 8. So I'll just say that to kind of give you a broad overview of how this fits together, the passage we're reading, and then over the course of the message, we're going to filter it down to verses 1 through 8 together. Revelation 7, verse 1. After this, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to those four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of their throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As I said this morning, as we transition into chapter 7, I want to kind of begin like this, kind of broadly covering the scope of chapter 6 and 7 together and kind of work down into verses 1 through 8 so that we can see the connections, we can see how it all fits together. So to that end, last week in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation where we've been looking into the glory of Christ, which is really what the book of Revelation is about, not about the end times. I hope that's clear in our minds right now. We're looking at the glory of Christ through the eyes of the Apostle John from a perspective we, we don't really see anywhere else in the Bible. This is another aspect of looking unto Jesus that we haven't seen elsewhere. And as we're looking unto Jesus here in the book of Revelation, in chapters 5, we saw him take the scroll from the Father's hand, and we began to see in chapter 6 the unfolding of that scroll, which is the Father's eternal plans and purposes, the eternal will of God. That scroll in chapter 6 is now in the hands of the Son, And now as the one who is worthy to take possession of that scroll, he is, can I use this language, co-governor of the universe? That's that's Trinitarian language. He's co-governor of the universe. He is the one entrusted with taking the Father's eternal plans and purposes and accomplishing them, bringing them to pass. That's why no one was worthy to take the scroll and to unlatch it and to unroll it. No one could do this. No one could approach the Father and accomplish His eternal plans and purposes, all that the Father had in His heart to do. But Christ is worthy. Christ has taken that scroll. That scroll is sealed with seven seals. Think of in these terms. It's, it's wax that, that holds the scroll together, and it's, it's sealed in with a signet ring or something. And these are the, the, the scroll is rolled up. And Christ, in chapter 6, is literally... Not literally, but unraveling these scrolls one at a time. He's breaking those seals one at a time. And as of yet, the scroll hasn't even been opened yet. The scroll, what we're looking at here, is the unfolding of God's plans and purposes as these seals are being broken. And it all has to do with this period of time between the resurrection or the ascension of Jesus Christ and His return. We're looking at this period of time, Uh, we call it the end times, but when we in modern days or since the 20th century talk about end times, we tend to only talk about the last part of it, right before Jesus returns. In the Bible, Jesus talks about the last days, and he's talking about from the time he leaves until the time he returns. So it's talking about the end times, but in the biblical sense of it, not in the 20th century idea of the end times, which is just a few years there at the very end of the thing. So he's dealing with all that has been taking place for the past 2,000 years and will continue until, who knows when, until our king returns. And what we're seeing in the breaking of these seals are very vivid pictures of the spiritual realities of this world in the time between the ascension of Christ and his return. In the time that Christ is there and his church is left down here. And these are the spiritual realities that the world, which is in rebellion to Christ, are living in. They've been going on since the days of the early church. 
It was going on the day, of the days of the seven churches of Asia Minor, which again, keep in mind, that's who this letter was written to. All this applies to them. This is what was happening in their day. But because they are the seven churches of Asia Minor, reflective of every church in every age, it's also the things that have, are happening in our day and have happened in every day uh, of, of every Christian, every church living in this world until the king returns. And what we saw is that in this period of time, because this world is in rebellion to Christ and his rule, Christ is sending forth a constant flow of judgment upon the earth. And it's been going on forever. It's been going on. Human life endures hardship here because of its rebellion to Christ. And we saw the unfolding of these various seals, the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, the fourth seal, the, those four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you will. Again, we're going to see in all of these cycles around this time period that was being studied, those first four, whether we're talking about the seal judgment, the trumpet judgment, or the bowl judgments, they, they, those four are always grouped together. Why? Because they're focusing on the same thing, just three different times. And there we saw with the first soul seal, excuse me, the greed of conquest. Uh, and then in the second seal, the peace is taken away. There's violence. Anytime there's conquest, that desire to take, to get, that greed of conquest, usually you're going to, whatever it takes, right? I'll get as violent as I need to get to get what I want. And then with conquest and with violence often comes famine. That was the third seal. Um, and we saw that no matter how man works in this life, in that constant greed for conquest, there's never enough. And so you, you gain, you get, you get today's, but you, you, you keep having to work. You have to go back to work. You have to do more and more. It's a, a never-ending cycle. It's hell on earth, if you will. A restrained hell, but hell on earth. And then the fourth seal being death itself. So, even these judgments of Christ that every human is experiencing, these are the, the wrath of Christ, but it's a restrained wrath. They're not the final judgment. These are just the constant ongoing trials and afflictions and hardships and tribulations that Jesus warned of. And you will have trouble, you will have trials. It's, it's, it's folly to think as Christians somehow we're promised to avoid it. Jesus himself said, you will endure this stuff. And that brought us to the fifth seal, which again, we're looking at the same time period. We're down here, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse as Christ is sending them down are, are bringing his wrath upon the earth. But the fifth seal, same time, just looks up. And we see the same thing from a different camera angle. We're just looking up this time. And we're, we see there the martyrs who are looking down on this time period, saying, how long, O Lord, will this continue? How long until, I mean, they deserve more than this. How long the persecution? How long the hardship, the affliction for your people, for the church? How long will you restrain your judgment? How long until you, you finally bring final judgment to which Christ just, to make it very, he just says, wait. There's more that has to happen. There's going to be more martyrs, and we talked about that last week. And then there's the unfolding of the sixth seal that shows the final judgment. Over this same time period, we've taken our sixth now cycle around this same time period, and now it's showing us a different perspective, God's wrath upon final judgment upon this time period. We don't know when it's coming. It will come. 
And what we saw in that sixth seal is a terrible, unprecedented flow of unrestrained wrath. This is differentiated from those first four wrath of God, which was was restrained, holding back. There's, There's actually grace accompanying. There's actually mercy there. Here, no grace, no mercy. The king, Psalm chapter 2, is angry. He was laughing previously in Psalm chapter 2 at the mockery. Now, time's up. The king comes and he's angry. So angry, so terrible is this that men and women and children, that's why you have that that listing of the the, the kings, the rich, uh, the free, the slaves. it's, it's, It's using those to say everybody. Everybody cries out, just bury us alive. It would be better to die under a mountain that falls on us and buries us alive than to have to face Jesus Christ on his throne, unrestrained wrath, no mercy, no grace. And chapter 6 ends with this picture of everlasting judgment upon a world that has rejected him, but it closes with a question. Who can stand? In the midst of all of this, who is able to stand? Insert chapter 7. Chapter 7 is an interlude, if you will. Chapter 7, rather than jumping from... We went through the first six seals rather quickly. But rather than jumping right into the seventh seal... The seventh seal isn't opened until we get to chapter 8. Chapter 7 is devoted to answering that question. Who can stand? And so as we understand that, we're learning more about what it is to read the book of Revelation. Again, we've said from the very outset, we, we simply cannot read Revelation the way we read historical narrative, the way we read gospel, the way we read, we read wisdom literature, it's its own culture. It's its own genre of scripture. And that's where a lot of the folly and a lot of the, 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 the mistakes when it comes to, to interpreting Revelation have come. We've tried to just read it like everything else. We read it like Westerners and we, we read it chronologically. And you have this and then chapter 7 follows chapter 6. And so it has to be this next and then this next and then this next. That's not how apocalyptic literature reads. You don't read it chronologically. John is not writing chronologically. We see that if we're paying attention to language, John is writing very clearly, I looked and I saw this. And he explains what he saw. And then he says, and then I looked over here and I saw this. He's not saying, he's saying, I'm human. I can only see one thing at a time. And after looking at this, I looked over and I saw this. It doesn't mean that chronologically that's the way it's. He's writing from his own experience. That's what we do. If you, if you wrote term papers in high school or in college, or if you're, if you're a writer, if you write like this to an editor, you write from, I mean, Westerners, we expect a book to be written chronologically, logically. It makes sense. And if it's not that, an editor is going to send it back to you, or your professor is going to send it back to you and say, hey, that's not how we write. You've got to make sense of this. You've got to give it some order. Apocalyptic literature is not that way. It's very random. It's very scattered. And you have to follow the visions. And so what we see here, chapter 7 follows chapter 6 numerically, but it does not follow chronologically. And if, you're, if you think about it or pay attention to chapter 7, it makes sense. Chapter 6 ends with what? Final judgment. Over. It's end. It's done. 
If it's writing chronologically, that should be the end of the book. There should be nothing less to come. Chapter 7, we're going to see, is about restrained judgment. How in the world could chapter 7 chronologically follow chapter 6? If chapter 6 ends with final judgment, there is no restrained judgment. And the answer is, it's not portraying something that happens after the sixth seal chronologically. It's not a chronological thing. It's a theological thing. It's a theological thing. Chapter 6 ends with a question. Final judgment upon all of humanity who can stand in the presence of this angry, returning king. Who's going to be able to endure that day? As we're looking, go back and look at the language. I mean, the sky is rolling up like a scroll. The ground, which was so firm, is, is, is turning to liquid. Everything that was so sure and secure and that we held on to is, is, is dissolving away. The question is, what's going to be left? Can anyone survive this? And the answer of chapter 7 is, theologically, yes. Yes. There are a people who can survive this. And chapter 7 is a description of those people. Chapter 7 is the answer, who can stand? And the answer is the church of Jesus Christ. The answer is the people of God. And chapter 7 pictures the people who can stand the church of Jesus Christ in two different pictures. And we're looking at the first of those pictures this morning in verses 1 through 8, and then chapters 9 through 17, same group of people, just a different camera angle, a different, different picture of them. But chapter 7 is a magnificent word of hope and comfort to those seven churches who are hearing this, and they have already been exposed, right? There's not a whole lot of words of commendation to those churches. There's a lot of repent. You've departed your king, and now they're told the king is coming again? You don't think it's on their mind? Who can stand? And Covenant Life Church, if that's not on our mind as well, we're not paying attention. Might it be that we're more concerned about, I want to understand this book finally. We've got to understand what Christ says to those seven churches is exactly what he exposes in us as well. Repentance, we said all along, is not, and I don't mean this condescendingly because I'm guilty of this. It's not just kind of over here, a series of words, and that covers it. Repentance is you've departed, you've strayed from your king, Jesus. Repentance is now returning to him, looking into him. And you better do it now because while all this is going on, look up, that's chapter 5 and 6. Our God is on the throne. He holds a scroll. There is someone worthy to take that scroll and to execute his eternal plans and purposes. And look, while this is going on, right now the call to repentance is going on. You're going through trials. You're going through affliction. But repent, repent. look to Jesus. He has taken the scroll. He's unfolding the, the seals. 
You're already going through. Life is not as it should be here, and that's not... That's because we have not bent the knee to the king as sufficiently and perfectly as he demands. And the sixth seal exposes when he comes in final judgment. It's over. It will be too late. There's not going to be, oh, no, this is it. This is what they said last minute. Jamie and I were talking about this last week after the message. There, this, here he comes. Real quick, let me, let me make this right. It's too late. And so as this is being pictured here, the call is to repent. And the question that's on their mind and the question that should be on our mind because we are not perfect Covenant Life Church. We are just like the seven churches. Can anyone stand in that? Do I have any hope? Chapter 7 is a word of gospel comfort to the church of Jesus Christ. And the message is this. God's people are altogether safe. Altogether safe. But the reason they're safe is not because they're better than those seven churches. We are the seven churches. All the compromise, all the idolatry, all the departing from our king, everything that was exposed, we are that. The reason we're safe is not because we're better than others. It's not because we're smarter than others. It's not because when the king returns, we had a plan to get out of the way, to sidestep him. That's not possible. The reason the church is safe is because the one who returns is their king. They're on his side. He owns them. They belong to him. They have lived unto him. They have looked unto him, not as just a platitude looking unto Jesus, but as their very life. And he keeps them for the good of his church. So in answering the closing question of Revelation chapter 6, who can stand? Chapter 7 is intended to bring comfort and encouragement to the living church of Jesus Christ. But it provides us the opportunity to examine our own hearts and to ask, am I really who I think I am? Am I really what I profess to be? Now, we've started out here. Let's continue working down a little bit, narrowing it down into chapter 7 itself. I said chapter 7 contains too many visions. There are two visions of the exact same thing. The people who will stand in the final judgments, the ones who will survive. It's the church of Jesus Christ. But they're being viewed from two different angles. Verses 1 through 8, we're being given a vision of the church now, right here in the hardship, in the afflictions, in the struggle, in the hardships, in the tribulations, in the afflictions, in everything. A vision of the church now. That's verses 1 through 8. Then in verses 9 through 17, you'll notice there's a transition. He writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So, same people but from a different perspective. Verses 1 through 8 focuses on a number, 144,000. The second vision, verses 9 through 17, focuses upon a great multitude that no one can number. Again, two different pictures of the same thing. The church, those who are able to stand in final judgment. Verses 1 through 8 
is the church today, the church militant. Verses 9 through 17, the church triumphant. The church itself, but in one, the church militant on earth, enduring everything, enduring all the, the sealed judgments, except for the final judgment, all the hardships and tribulations and persecutions on this earth. Verses 9 through 17, the church triumphant. John has this vision. He looks upward and he sees the church has made it through harm's way. They've made it through the restrained judgment of Christ on earth. They've made it through the afflictions. They've made it through the hardships, the persecutions, the trials, the tribulations, and now they're triumphant in glory. Both the church, but one the church militant, the other the church triumphant. But of greater significance, what's most important to see is not that we understand all the dots and how this all connects. You've got to see in both of these images at the center of it all is Jesus Christ. How will they survive the final judgment? It's the one who's at the middle of them all. It's Christ. He's at the center of both of these visions of the church. And he is our hope. He is our comfort. He is the one to whom God is pointing the seven churches and to us today. So our focus this morning on the first of these many visions of chapter 7 the sealing of Christ's militant church. The opening of chapter 7, again, our focus now, we just continue on in. Now our focus is on verses 1 through 8. The opening half of this chapter really is a, a wonderful description of the Christian's hope. It's intended to be that way. The hope for the seven churches, the hope for every church in every age, the hope for Covenant Life Church and for every church until Jesus returns because we're looking at this same time period. In the midst of all the sinister, destructive forces that are going on in the world around them that were unleashed in, the, unleashed in the previous chapter, John is demonstrating Christ is in control of those. Christ knows what he's doing. Everything that we go through, God, God is permitting it to happen. It's awesome stuff, but he know, has a purpose in it all. And then, even in the final judgment, the moon is darkened, the sun and the stars are falling, the earth is shaking, the ground is dissolving, the sky is rolling up like a scroll. God has removed all his strain, all his judgment, and every person is crying out for the mountains to fall upon them, bury them alive, because that would be better than to stand face to face with King Jesus in his return. No one can survive that. And then chapter 7, verse 1 after this, I turned, if you will, I turned, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So he says, I, I just saw this, and then not chronologically, but I, I saw something else now that, that is integral to everything going forward. I looked and I saw another scene, and this scene, in a sense, precedes what, what we just read in Final Judgment. It actually comes before it. This is what seals the church so that they can stand in the judgment. Before final judgment comes, John saw in verse 1 four, standing, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. That is one in the, the north, one in the east, one in the south, one in the west. And each are assigned with, by God with executing his wrath on his behalf. So they're the ones who are going to execute it on their area of the world. North, east, south, west. 
They're the ones who are going to do it. And so in the sense, the, the wrath of God here is pictured like a, a massive storm, right? Uh, a tsunami, an earthquake, a hurricane, a volcanic eruption. Uh, no one of them captures it. It just put them all together. That's kind of the idea here. But these angels, until that moment that, that, that God executes that sixth seal, these angels are holding back the four winds of the earth. Isn't that what the text says? They're holding back the four winds of the earth. They're holding back the storm of God's wrath. They're restraining it. It's not yet time. The only thing restraining it here is it just, God says exactly what he said to the martyrs. Wait. It's not time. There's more to be done. But then in verse 2, John looks into the eastern horizon. He sees the sun that's beginning to creep up over the edge of the horizon. And from that direction comes verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and with a message for the four other angels. And the message is this, verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The message from this one angel who comes out over the horizon, the four angels, are, they're, they're holding on to God's wrath. It's not yet time. And this angel with a loud voice We've heard that terminology before, by the way. When Christ speaks in Revelation, he speaks with a loud voice. Speaks with a loud voice, wait. It's not yet time. Do not release the wrath of God until, here's the number, the 144,000 are sealed by God. And so that's the message here to the seven churches. The message to you and I is yes, what we just saw in the sixth seal of chapter 6 is coming. It is a reality. God's righteous judgment demands it for the sins of His glory and the crimes against His beloved Son, Jesus. And the question, who can stand, is a right question to ask. Even for the seven churches. Even for Covenant Life Church to ask. If I'm seeing God rightly, and I understand his power, and I understand his holiness, and I understand his righteousness, and I understand his justice. I want to know the answer to that question as well. Who can stand? And the message of this angel with a loud voice is, fear not. The church, the true church, will not be harmed. Oh, the final judgment. It's going to destroy anything and everything. Nothing will survive. But that will not come until the seal is given to my people. That's the broad message. Let's dig in to get the application. What is the seal? What does it mean to be sealed? What's the symbolism? What is God doing here? The idea of seal in the ancient world and in the biblical world was that wax that was placed on a document 
And the seal was, it was imprinted, the seal of a king or the seal of a leader. Uh, it, was, it was impressed into the wax to seal a document. And, and, and it was a way to secure the document. And the seal on a document in the ancient world and in the biblical world, it, it symbolized at least four things. First, it symbolizes security and protection. God is saying, wait until we have sealed the 144,000. What he's saying here is he's saying, Wait, don't send that final judgment for which no man can stand. I'm going to seal them. I'm going to secure them. I'm going to protect my people. They cannot be harmed. They will not be harmed. What they deserve, that unrestrained wrath, has already been placed on my son Jesus. They are protected by the only thing that protect them, divine power. God says, wait until they're sealed. It has to do with security and protection. Also, it has the idea of identification and ownership. When you put a seal on something, you're saying, even as this goes out and about, it's mine. I have ownership. God is saying, not only I'm going to secure and protect my people, he's saying, they belong to me. We know this from a practical standpoint. If you do online banking, I don't know if you do, but if you do, you have a password, a seal that you put on that account. You can access it, but no one else. You put your seal, your password on that. That's yours. The money in that account is yours. It's not somebody else's. You don't give that out to somebody else. You're saying that belongs to me. And that's exactly what we see throughout the New Testament. When Christ purchases his church, they belong to him. They're his, not just for now, but for eternity. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. And here God is saying, I have ownership of this people. And I'm making sure that, that they know they are mine. They are mine. When, the, when, when they see the king coming, they're going to see him. That's their king. They're safe. Also, it signifies authenticity. When something is sealed, it speaks to its genuineness. It speaks to it's the real thing. It's, it's bona fide. And so there's a sense in which God is saying, when I seal the 144,000, when I, when, I, when I commune with them through faith and by my spirit, I'm giving them assurance, authenticity. I'm giving them absolute reality that they are mine and I am theirs. I, I'm, I'm giving them every assurance that when they see the king come in wrath, unrestrained wrath, every assurance, but you belong to me. You're my family. I've adopted you. I own you. And it's real, it's authentic. You're sealed. And I cannot take it back. It's his way of saying, I'm faithful to my promise to you. I'm steadfast in my love to you. It's a seal that's impossible for me to break. And finally, the seal is always a guarantee. When a king put his seal on a document and sent it out, it was an official document. 
whatever the contents of that document were, if it was a promise, or the king was declaring, this is reality. This is the truth. This is my promise. It's a down payment. What I promise in this document, it's a guarantee. This is the idea when Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of the Holy Spirit as God's down payment, as God's seal, as the inheritance of our redemption. It's the down payment, the promise. And so when this angel with a loud voice says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God, what God is saying is, Who can stand? Only those that I put my seal upon. I seal them for my security. I seal them for my own purposes. I seal them for my ownership. I seal them for authenticity. I seal them to guarantee to them my promise to them that everything I've promised them in my beloved son will be theirs. I cannot break those promises. And as we gather together this morning and we sing about the blood of Jesus Christ, as we sing about behold our God seated on his throne, as we sing about our glorious Christ, what we're doing here is we are verifying that seal upon our heart. Any goofy person off the street could come in and sing these, sit right where we are and sing the songs. What should distinguish us from all them is right here. Those, those words mean something to us. Those words are our hope. Not because the songs themselves are, are the words are inspired by God, but because they reflect the truth of the gospel. We gather together this morning and we turn our hearts to the Lord as, as, it, to, to secure that seal in our own hearts. That, that seal is ours. Do you love Jesus? Not in the sense of how we can just say it without even thinking about it. I mean, do you love Jesus? Do you, 1 Peter 1, love Jesus? Though you do not now see him, you love him with a joy that is inexpressible and full of joy. That kind of love, that is the Christian life. That's the seal. The Holy Spirit in the new covenant comes and takes out that heart of stone that can mouth the words, I love Jesus, but in here has no affection for Jesus whatsoever and puts in a heart of flesh that absolutely, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and says, he's my everything, he's my all. That's the evidence of the seal and we gather together to sing, to preach these things to our own hearts. Not because we gather in here perfectly righteous, We come in and we are concerned. Who can stand? But as we sing, as we pray, as we open our hearts to the preaching of the word, our hope is in that these things resonate. That we're finding our hope in who Jesus is. Revelation 7 is portraying for the true church of Jesus Christ. That church will stand in that final judgment. It's a wonderful way of illustrating Ephesians 1.13. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So what is the work of the Holy Spirit? To point us to Jesus. 
It's not some subjective, it, it is a very objective reality. Jesus says, I have to leave. I'm sending someone in my place who's going to keep you focused upon me, the Holy Spirit. That's the seal. Do we love him? Now, that's the first thing we want to look at here. What is this seal? What is it? To those who love Jesus and have this affection for him, we have this promise of security, of protection, of guarantee. But, John is clear. If you look at verses 4 through 8, this is a word of hope, but not a universal word of hope. In verses 4 through 8, you have the description specifically of the people who are safe when final judgment comes, when the sky is rolling up like a scroll and the ground is dissolving like liquid and every human is crying out for the mountains to fall upon them and bury them alive so that they don't have to stand face to face with, their ang- with an angry king. But these are the people who can feel completely safe. These 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And they're listed for us in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. So who are the 144,000 who will be able to withstand the persecution, who will stand before God on that day? And we know that's certainly a matter of great subjection. For the better part of the last 120 years or so, the most common thought has been thought that this refers to a literal remnant of Jewish converts. Uh, And for most of us, that's all we've ever known. That's not the historic position. As we learn, again, the, uh, the culture of apocalyptic literature, one of the things we've learned is every number we're coming upon, for the most part, is symbolic. And we must, as we learn the culture of apocalyptic literature, we must apply the culture. Why would we expect now anything different? As we come together, I think the 144,000 is meant to describe the number 12 is used symbolically, again, to describe completeness. That's, that's not me just coming. I mean, we see this throughout Scripture. 12 is a picture of completeness. It's also a picture of God's people. 12 tribes of Israel. 12 apostles. Those are not cool similarities. There's a reason why the number 12 is used. It's symbolic of God's people. And when you put these ideas together here, there's a complete assembly, a fullness of God's people here. And so I advocate to you the 144,000 is meant to describe a large gathering of God's people. it's, 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 It's what's there. But again, it's clear, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Is it only talking about national Israel? My answer to that is no. And, and that's, not, that's just the New Testament understanding of this. Why would we, here in the book of Revelation, do any deviate from what's been established for us in the New Testament? Paul himself it applies in Romans chapter 2, in the New Covenant understanding of Israel. Paul explains in... Romans chapter 2, make sure I get it right. Romans 2, 28 and 29. 
As he's talking about Abraham, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Uh, historically, the Jews and the Israel, the, the, if, if you were a descendant of Abraham, you were lumped in. And then in the New Covenant, Paul says, no, that's not true. Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is not a matter of the external flesh. It's a matter of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's a spiritual understanding of Israel. We see the same thing in the book of Galatians, where Paul begins to unlay uh, here that the, the mark of true Jewishness is not has your body been cut up and have you obeyed the law, but that the identifying distinguishing mark of true Jewishness is That was what Israel could never do. Israel's problem was not external, it was internal. And in the new covenant, through the Holy Spirit, through Christ, that's what's remedied. And so we, I commend to you that the 144,000 is not meant to be just national Jews only, but one, out of faithfulness to the fulfillment of the new covenant, is talking about a spiritual Israel. Secondly, if you look at the listing of the 12 tribes of Israel here in the Old Testament. This is one of 20 different listings of the tribes of Israel. And stay with me for this. I know this is where probably it kind of, uh, you know, stay with me. Of these 20 lists, this doesn't match any other. This, it doesn't match. One of the tribes of Israel are completely missing here. The tribe of Dan, scan it, it's not there. Certainly one of the tribes of Judah. Excuse me, one of the tribes of Israel. Also in this, you'll notice there's a, a, a very peculiar thing. The presence of Joseph and Manasseh. Why is that unique? In every other instance of these things, when Joseph is mentioned, neither of the two sons are. When Manasseh is mentioned, he's always mentioned with his brother Ephraim, and Joseph is left out. Here, very peculiarly, we have the presence of father and son, but not the other son, Joseph and Manasseh. Also, you'll see mentioned here the tribe of Levi. In many other lists, Levi is left out, particularly when it comes in those lists that have to do with the division of the, the land and the promised land. Why would Levi not be listed in those lists? What piece of land did Levites get? They didn't get their own land, did they? They were positioned in everybody's. They got a piece of that. So they're missing in most of these, but here they are in this particular list, so we know that there's something peculiar going on. And then most telling is the order of the tribes is very different. Normally they're, I say normally, normally they're from eldest to youngest. Who's first in this one? The tribe of Judah. And he certainly wasn't the oldest. In fact, Reuben, but he's moved down to second. Here we have Judah at the head of this list. And it may seem like splitting hairs, but it's absolutely, why would these, I won't say problems, why would these inconsistencies exist if John isn't trying to be very specific in something? Why, why would these inconsistencies exist if, if John is merely just laying out the 12 tribes of Israel? He could have done that, and it would have been a much clearer list here. Answer. 
There's a theological reason. Chapter 6 ends with the theological question, who can stand? Chapter 7, this interlude, is the theological answer to that. And the idea here, as we, we look into this passage, Judah is listed first because who's the king in all of this? It's Jesus from the tribe of Judah. And he's listed first as the, the primacy, the preeminent one here. He's from that particular tribe. The next four spots here are filled by the sons of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. That's peculiar. They're grouped together, lumped together, these concubines. And then the remaining six are the sons of Leah and Rachel. Most commentators, this is not me, most commentators assert that what we have here is that John is being very intentional to highlight for us the inclusion of outsiders into the covenant family. By giving the the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah the concubines, a place of preeminence in the order, he's being, being very specific to say, yeah, I just want to make sure you see and understand that even these outsiders are among the sealed. That's good news for you and I as Gentiles. Another reason why I don't think we have to assert that this is just national Israel, when you get to chapter 14, we're not going to look at it this morning, but when we get to chapter 14, there in verse 3, They are described as, the uh, the 144,000 are described as those who have been redeemed from the earth. And the word used for redeemed there is the same one used in Revelation chapter 5, where John says that Christ ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He purchased not just the Jews, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And then... Just the icing on the cake. Verse 9 is a picture of the exact same people, the church of Jesus Christ. And verse 9 is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. You see, the 144,000, who can stand these sealed ones, 144,000, symbolic of a great mass of God's people, Good news for the churches in Asia Minor and you and I today. This has to apply to them and to us. It's symbolic of the true covenant people of God, the true Israel, the new covenant believers who have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles. They are the ones sealed by God's grace. Covenant Life Church, you and I, are sealed by God's grace. You and I can stand in the final judgment through through all of this if, and it brings us finally to the third thing, one more thing to consider. We can be included in those who can stand in the judgment. But I want to go back to verse 2. This angel from the east who comes with the seal of the living God and called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we, we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I commend to you, and I'm not going to 
put a post here and say, this is it all together. But I commend to you what we have here is either Christ or Christ's ambassador who comes in and says, who can stand? I have a message of comfort, but it's also a gospel message. This king lamb, if you will, this king lamb angel comes and shouts with a loud voice, his voice ringing through the heavens, ringing to the ends of the earth, to the angels at the ends of the earth, north, east, south, west. Wait, wait, wait. Not until the 144,000, not until that massive group of the people of God, God's people, are sealed. Hold back. What would destroy them, hold it back until every one of them are sealed. And what we have here is New Testament Passover. Go back to the Old Testament and to the Passover. Go back to the imagery there. The details are different, but the imagery is the exact same. Again, what we see in the Bible is seeds are planted, and then through it, it's just the unraveling, the unfolding, the blossoming of it. Go back. This is alluded to in the Old Testament. There in Egypt, the people of God were were going through persecution. They were going through plagues. They were going through all kinds of hardships and trials and tribulations as God's judgment was being poured out upon that nation. And the worst is still to come. What would be the worst judgment? The death of the firstborn, right? Who would stand when that angel of death comes to destroy the firstborn? Who could stand when that angel of death comes and takes them all? Answer. Those who are sealed by the blood of the Lamb. Those who were sealed by the angel, the lamb who came and atoned his blood, and that lamb was put on the doorpost. Who could stand when that angel of death comes to take every firstborn? Only those who were sealed by the blood. That is exactly, exactly the foreshadowing of what we're looking at here. The vision comes full circle. Who can stand in the storm of God's unrestrained wrath and judgment? Answer, the 144,000 who are sealed. Well, who are they? Who are those? They are the true Israel of God. True, we're being just consistent with the Bible. The new, true new covenant believers, the true Israel. Not those who've been circumcised, Romans chapter 2, Galatians 2, 3, and 4 but those who've been circumcised internally, a heart, the hardness of the heart cut away, a softened heart put in that loves Jesus, the forgiven, the redeemed, those who've repented of their sins, those who've looked to Jesus. And how will they be recognized when when the, the flood of God's unrestrained wrath comes? They're sheltered under the blood. The mark of the seal of the Lamb is upon their foreheads. No, not literal. The mark of the blood of Jesus Christ. Go Revelation chapter uh, 14, 1, 2, and 3. The Father and the Son. Those who are covered by the blood of Jesus, those are the ones who are protected. Those are the ones who are secure. Those are the ones who are made authentic through the blood. 
You see, when it comes to this unrestrained wrath of God, the blood of Jesus is everything. We may want to get caught up in disagreeing over the 144,000. We may want to get caught up in how dare you do it. Fine, forget it if you disagree with me. What you better come to terms with and what I have to come to terms with is that the only hope for that 144,000, for the church of Jesus Christ, is the blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood, they live. By the blood, they die. You see, the whole purpose of revisiting seven times here this first sealed judgments of God. We're looking at the time from the ascension till his return. Here we are. We had not got to the seventh loop around, but we've taken six already. What's the purpose of it all? Hey, seven churches, you've been called to repentance. Don't toy with this God. The storm is coming. The storm is coming. Don't delay. You know, we are in that season of the year now where storms come up here in North Mississippi and Memphis. How do you respond when a storm comes? You know, I bet we have various responses. For me, I tend to be the type of person, I get the message, the storm's coming, take shelter, I'll look at the radar, ah, it looks like it's going around. I don't know, I just, I hear the sirens, I see it, I, but it looks like it's not going to hit me. So I kind of don't make a big deal about it, don't do anything. There are others who may take a different approach. They'll take the warning seriously. They'll hear the sirens go off, and they'll go, I remember growing up, put the mattress in the bathtub, right? You find an interior room. They find no windows, right? You get your wallet. I remember Dave Brown saying, put your shoes on. That was always so morbid to me. But you create this man-made shelter, right? Take precaution. Or you got another group of people who just completely carefree. They may say something like, I'm looking at it. It's coming. This is why you have insurance. I've paid my premiums. I'm all caught up. Even if it destroys everything, I've got insurance. I'm not worried. When we come to Revelation chapter 7, are you the type of person who says, Revelation 7, that's a fine chapter. Jake, I disagree with you a little bit on some of the things there. It's a good chapter. You've kind of helped me to understand a few things this morning, but I hear the unrestrained wrath of God. I've been hearing that since I was a little kid. It's not going to come. Get a grip. Get a grip. Or are you the type of person that says, Oh, I know it's coming. And I've made my man-made shelter. I've got my morality. I've done some good things, religious things. Here I am on Father's Day Sunday. I'm at church. I got here. Maybe I, maybe I didn't give my all in the prayer meeting. Maybe I didn't really give my all in the singing. Maybe I've fallen asleep through your message the whole time. But, but I'm here. I've got my morality. I've got my religion. I've done these good things. I've, I've made my sacrifices. I'm going to be okay. Or maybe you have that insurance response. Yep. 
You're right, Brother Jake, the wrath of God is coming. But I've paid my insurance premiums. I've walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I got dunked in the water. I got nothing to worry about. If it comes, well then, that's why I have insurance. And I'll get what I'm owed. And I'll be standing in the presence of Almighty God. It's not coming. I've got my man-made shelter. I paid my hell insurance premiums. All are popular options, and they may be very well the things that you and I are clinging to this morning. And not a one of those will stand when the wrath of God comes. Not on those merits by themselves. None of those things make us safe. The only hope to stand is the seal of God, the Holy Spirit. And please don't keep that as some just distant truth. The Holy Spirit comes, takes out a heart of stone, takes out that religious heart, takes out that moral heart, takes out that fire insurance heart that just says, oh, I've done this, I've checked the boxes, and so when he comes, I'm going to be taken care of. He takes out that, that heart and puts in a heart that sees ourselves the way he sees us, that helps us see ourselves in the churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. That gives us heart to hear his call to repentance and helps us to understand the gravity of these sealed judgments and that they're not just something that's who knows how long in the future and only applies to people on that day. Satan is so happy to let us just kind of leave that lingering out there. This is for us. The blood atonement of Jesus is the seal applied in the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that the mark on your forehead? Not literally. The mark of love for Jesus, love for the Father. Are we hiding behind the blood, sheltered in the atonement of Jesus? Can you say what you just sang? On Christ the solid rock I stand? Anybody can sing that. Is that stamped by the Holy Spirit here? The blood is my only hope. If not, you cannot stand before this holy God. You will not survive. If that's you, ask, Lord, teach me. Somewhere in the past, I got hold of some teaching that was erroneous, that was incomplete. It didn't go all the way. And my heart is so hardened now that even when I'm being confronted right now, imperfectly, I wish you had somebody better up here to explain this better than me, but even right now when I'm being confronted that everything I'm clinging to will not stand in the judgment, and I'm being told right now it's a heart of love for Jesus, devotion to Jesus, stamped on the forehead, overflow of the heart, Him, that even now I'm resistant. Ask God to show you what's wrong. Ask God to remove the scales. Ask God to show you who you are, who he sees you to be. Show you your need. Show you that Christ alone is your hope. I can't be anymore. Please don't hear irritation in my voice. That's not it. I've preached a message like this, and I've been told it comes across angry. That's not my intent. It's not anger. It is, please, please, please don't cling to old traditions. Cling to Christ, the new covenant.
application of the Holy Spirit to our hearts and lives. What a glorious Savior. What a glorious seal. Unworthy people like us and those Revelation 2 and those seven churches, Christians, we can find ourselves secure, protected, guaranteed to stand in the final judgment because of Jesus Christ and his blood. What are you clinging to? If it's anything else, turn to him.